Good evening. I don't think I've given a Wednesday night talk in this building before. Um, over the years since Gil uh, started his group, I think he started it when he was dying in um, Stanford. Does anyone remember that far back? Yeah. I remember going, there was about 10 people. And Gil and I marveling about how many people had turned up. <laughs> and now it's a, a whole enterprise with a whole list of events and announcements. Recently I was reading um, a piece from the, the Pali Canons, the middle length things, and um, as maybe many of you know, uh, Mahakashapa was supposedly the first person who like, got it from uh, Shakyamuni. Did you know that? Is that, is that a, no? Well, here's, here's what the story is. And then, it, then it, it's sort of taken up in, in Zen as a certain kind of uh, quintessential communication of what practice is. The story is something like this. And by this time, Shakyamuni has a group. He's been practicing a while and teaching for a while. And then one day he comes in and he holds up a flower. And he, and he just holds up the flower and doesn't say a word. And Mahakashipa smiles. So that is considered in Zen to be the uh, communication of what practice is. You know, the, uh, the suchness of the flower and that goes beyond words. Anyway, that wasn't the point of what I was going to say. I was going to say that uh, the story I read recently, so Mahakashiba was what was like Shakyamuni, where they started off as essentially, how would you describe them? They, they lived in the woods and they ate very simply and they were ascetics and they were kind of hermit ascetics. And with Shakyamuni, after his enlightenment, he then began to teach and started a group and the group grew and they actually, in Shakyamuni's lifetime, they, they were given properties and they had places around northern India where they had sort of set up communities and and either Shakyamuni or his group evolved and developed quite an elaborate system. They'd get together at certain times and they had codes of conduct and, and Shakyamuni gave a whole, as far as we know, I mean, it's an oral tradition, so it's impossible literally to say what really happened and what was described as happening over the next 300 years. But Mahakashiba stayed a hermit and um, this piece that I was reading recently, um, Mahakashiba comes to visit Shakyamuni in uh, one of the places that he had established uh, through a donation of a benefactor, a residential retreat center, as we might call it. And... Um, 
Samahakashiba, of course, as, a, as an aesthetic hermit, is very disheveled. And, and the uh, monks, when they see this disheveled bum coming, are quite unimpressed. <laughs> and uh, are not sure they might want to let him in, but somehow he seems to know the right people, including the top guy. And uh, so he, he comes in and... Um, and Shakyamuni notices this dynamic, so um, Shakyamuni had like a teaching seat. So he uh, had Mahakashyapa sit up on the teaching seat beside him. He like scooted over, so they both, that's where they both sat. And um, then uh, Shakyamuni asked Mahakashyapa to give the Dharma talk. Mahakashyapa declined because he said, that's not my style. I don't give Dharma talks. And um, he said, but I would like to ask, you know, he said, now that you have all this, you know, establishment and, and he says, like, is this better? Is, is like, is this, like, are you further along in the Dharma? He says, he says, seems to me that in the old days we had fewer rules and more arahants, but now you have more rules and less arahants. <laughs> you all know what an arahant is? No. Um, in, in the early Buddhist tradition, an arahant was someone who had seen so completely into the nature of what is, they had stopped struggling with it and they let go of their cravings and aversions and, and, and lived a life in accord with the Dharma. And the, the, the lore of early Buddhism is that Shakyamuni was such a wonderful presence and example that many people attained this state. If attained is the right verb, it's a tricky notion. Um, or let go of the hindrances that prevent this state of simple being. And then Shakyamuni agreed with him. He says, yeah, in the old days, that's right. And I thought, now how amazing, even in Shakyamuni's time, they had the old days. <laughs> So I talk about the old days when there were only ten people. And they were all Arahites. <laughs> um, excuse me. It was an extraordinary teaching. It's kind of wonderful how that... Uh, the, the interesting thing about oral traditions, which Buddhism was, Buddhist teachings were for at least 300 years, is what gets included. Because that's the things that people felt interesting enough and important enough to keep repeating. Because if people didn't tell each other in, in successive generations, they just disappeared. So these were the stories... So this is an interesting one to be included for that reason.
Shakyamuni pondering as we build up our centers, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And you know, becoming the abbot of a big center <laughs> and being immersed in, you know, it's like the day after I became abbot, um, in my basket, there was a file from the uh, accounting office, a, uh, what do you call it, a, a, a listing of all our uh, financial dealings, you know, about 45 pages. <laughs> and uh, in, in full harmony with our society, we're having a financial crisis. <laughs> So I think I was relieved to read this thing about Mahakashapa. There's actually, in, in this thing, there's actually a list. I know this sounds quite irrelevant, but I'll try to make it relevant. There's <laughs> a list of all these things that you, when you're an aesthetic, you know, you, you never sleep inside a building. Well, obviously, you, you never like would keep food overnight, but you wouldn't do that as a regular monk. But you, there's a whole series. You wouldn't take cloth. You would only take. You would go rummage for discarded cloth, and that's what you make your robes out of. And this is a whole series of these rules. So I was looking at our uh, 45-page, you know, financial statement, and thinking, hmm. What would Mahakashyapa think of this? <laughs> so, so it's a very interesting thing that we do, you know, in, in uh, upholding a tradition that has its roots in northern India and, and trying to find its essence, its vibrant application in our own lives. And the heart of the teaching, the heart of the practice is not so different. You know, recently in the latest copy of Tricycle magazine, Upandita, who is a, um, a Burmese Vipassana teacher. I assume most of you are aware that there, there is in Burma a, a marvelous heritage of the Vipassana tradition. And I think it could be rightly said that Upandita is one of the living carriers of that tradition, a deeply seasoned teacher, a teacher's teacher. And this article was giving a very simple, concise, and clear description of what you do when you come to a teacher in a Vipassana retreat. (laughs) You mention what's occurring, you mention how you note it, and you mention what happens when you note it. And you could sort of tell from the way he gave the instruction was, that's what you say, and you don't embellish, <laughs> and you don't digress. You know, it's like, that's what you do. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's like our meditation, you know. Our meditation has a simple, exact, unswerving request of us. 
be present for what's happening. You know, be awake for it. Notice what it is. Don't cling to it. Don't push it away. Um, you know, and this hasn't changed from the time of Shakyamuni. You know, this request doesn't change. You know, whether we have you know, marvelous centers or whether we're still practicing under trees. You know, it doesn't matter whether you have a 45-page financial statement or, you know, a, a calendar of events that's, uh, you know, in four colors and on glossy sheets. Um, the heart of the practice is exactly the same. And each time we sit on, to meditate, you know. This is this amazing challenge in front of each one of us. You know, can we return to the heart of practice? Uh, I was thinking about this, you know, as I was driving down. I live in San Francisco beside the Zen Center. And it was raining quite heavily for a bit of the way. And the traffic was slowing down. And I've only been the abbot for a couple of weeks, and I have literally had this deluge of uh, information and activity. And um, and I was kind of amused because I was thinking about what I was going to talk about, and I was noticing I wasn't doing a very good job of practicing it. <laughs> you know, I'd be trying to be present, and then my mind would start to think about i look at the clock and think, hmm, am I going to get there on time? Which I didn't, excuse me. <laughs> um, and my mind would get caught up in something else. Uh, there's a saying in Zen that practice is uh, one continuous mistake. <laughs> I remember one of the first retreats I did, you know, and I was still a monk in Thailand. And I went and I said, my concentration is abysmal, you know. I seem to be able to focus for no more than a second. And then my mind just goes away. And then I come back and then it goes away again. And the teacher said, that's very good. You can notice within a second that your mind is going to <laughs> Which points to something subtle and very relevant. Because anything in our lives that we become sincere about and make a diligent effort to engage. You know, it's, it's, it's like we give it an authority in our lives. So what if we're no good at it? What if we don't get the, um, the expected results? Um, then it becomes a very uh, ambiguous relationship we have with it. So this very heart of practice, along with being exacting, 
It has no expectation. There's no um, demanded outcome of it. And of course, this is in our in our conventional lives to our conventional mind, which purposefully does something to gain something or to accomplish something. This this is an extraordinary paradox. How can you wholeheartedly give over to doing something with no requirement that the consequence of it be a certain way? So paradoxically, the notion, one continuous mistake, is actually to help us. What what it's saying underneath the one continuous mistake, it's saying, there's no way to get this right. You know, practice is not about getting your life right. It's not about getting your meditation right. I mean, just think of the last thirty, the thirty minutes when you meditated. First of all, ask yourself, now, of all the things that came up that hooked your mind and that you thought about, how many of them can you even remember? <laughs> could you, if Upandita was here, could you list them for him? <laughs> Tell him how you noted them, <laughs> what arose when you noted? Maybe if you asked yourself now, even one, you know, is is there one of those that you could notice came up, you noted it, and what happened when you noted it? The very capacity to do that, the commitment to do that, asks us to go beyond, here's what I was trying to get to, here's what I was trying to make happen. It's, it's a giving over. There's a, um, a story. It's, it's actually a Christian monastic story that I heard once, but I think it works very well in, in our context as Buddhist practitioners. And here's where the story goes. Um, one senior monk is visiting a monastery, and he comes to visit the abbot. And um, and they're talking. And the abbot says, oh, there's an extraordinary person here I'd like you to meet. And so he takes them and they walk down to the cells where the monks live and he knocks on the door and quite quickly the door opens. And, and it's a, a young monk opens the door and he's, he, uh, the abbot, you know, says hello and introduces his friend and goes over to where the monk was doing calligraphy. And, and you, you can tell from the way the monk was doing calligraphy that when the door was knocked, he stopped in mid-stroke, put the pen down, and immediately went and opened the door. So that's the story. So how would we be engaging our lives if we were immediately available for unexpected arisings? 
how would we be engaging our lives if we could quickly and willingly adjust, adapt, and respond to what arises? And of course, in this context, most of us find ourselves living in the world of one continuous mistake. We notice that as we're driving our car to go give a, give a Dharma talk, that we're, our mind is getting stuck and caught up and chewing over things and clinging to them. So this is the peculiar process as, as we cultivate our sincerity and dedication. That, that, that the more sincere we are about walking this straight line of dedicated attention, the more evident becomes when the mind wanders, when stuff comes up. The more evident, the more sincere we are about trying to enter the moment without some demanding agenda, with some willingness just to meet it exactly as it is, without grasping or aversion. The more we bring that kind of willingness, or we attempt to bring that kind of willingness, the more we'll see well, that's not quite what we're doing. And this is very important to remember. It's like the teacher so skillfully turning uh, my sense of frustration or limitation, saying, oh, my meditation is terrible, turning it and saying, how wonderful that you're noticing your own digressions so quickly, so honestly. And yet, in the middle of it, um, it's just digressing. It's just getting caught up. Um, There isn't really a deviation into self-congratulations. So sometimes the image in Zen that's used is that we put ourselves in the cooking pot. We get cooked. It's our own sincerity and dedication that creates the heat. And we watch our mind, our emotions, our heart uh, bring forth its dramas And we try to shine a light on them with the heart of the Dharma. You know, we try to, by bringing our awareness to that, 
to the arising of a human life with this very same practice that Shakyamuni did, that Mahakashyapa did, with that very same practice, we try to meet whatever our life is, whatever our period of zazen, our period of uh, meditation is. So another Zen story I'd like to mention is um, one in which um, the monk is sweeping and the teacher comes along and asks him, um, are you busy or not? It's a variation on the one of the monk doing calligraphy. You know, it's like, so with, with, how are you around this activity? You know, how are you spacious? Are you at ease? Or are you caught up? Are, are you uh, struggling to make it be a certain way? Or fearing it from being a certain way? Or are you doing it in a distracted mode? Are you caught up in, in other thoughts? Are you driving your car down to the freeway, worrying about if you're going to get where you're going on time? So are you too busy? So this is um, maybe another notion we can offer ourselves. And how I would describe it is, um, I remember once um, I was in Japan and and I was staying with a monk uh, who lived in a a very intense monastery and we were in very tight quarters, so we, we were working very hard. We were actually putting on a retreat for uh, Jungian psychoanalysts. And, um, and we were, four of us were sleeping in this small room. And so we were getting up about 4 a.m., and then we were doing all this arranging and planning and implementing. And then we'd get to bed about 11 at night. And um, But I noticed... And, and this monk was a real trickster. He was always um, uh, you know, pulling practical jokes, always goofing around. And then he lay down to go to sleep. And he lay down and he immediately started to do lying meditation. And his whole demeanor changed. And this this incorrigible trickster became this lying Buddha, you know. And I just thought, hmm. So in the midst of your busyness, as you carry it around, you know, whether you're an inveterate trickster or whatever else you are, Can you stay connected to something 
that when it's time to rest, you can rest, you can let it go. And, And what I would suggest is that before you, quite practically, before you go to sleep, is uh, both a healthful thing to do it and a beneficial in terms of practice. Can you can you lie down and release? Can can we return to a simple way of being? There are different practices, you know, in Buddhism and in other practices too. Where you literally, as you go to sleep, before you go to sleep, you review your day as a process of letting it go. It's like, can that day be over? You know, as a monk, you don't um, keep food from one day to another. You know, you eat and then you give the rest away, if there is any to give away. So this sense of letting go, this this sense of um, returning to something basic. So that's something you can try. You can try that this evening when you go to bed. Just watch what arises. And as it arises, can it just be allowed to uh, fall away? Can you um, give yourself permission to be something very simple? And hopefully that simple being has a sense of ease. And then, as it says in the discourses, you know, you will uh, sleep better, you'll wake refreshed, and be more inclined towards happiness. But really, those are just um, minor considerations. (laughs) But they're not too bad. One last thing I'd like to mention. Um, It's with regards... uh, You know, religious settings are set up to um, remind us of the heart of practice. But it's very interesting here in the States because so few of us actually live in religious settings, you know. We, we, we don't live in, in monasteries or retreat centers. We live in cities and we drive on freeways. And um, so, so we don't have so many external stimuli reminding us of the heart of practice. So the notion I'd like to suggest to you is that we are obliged to internalize it. And, you know, traditionally in spiritual practice, that is sustaining intention and vow. And most religious practices, Buddhism included, 
there is an intentional stimulation of intention and vow. Like in the, in the early tradition, the monks would get together on the full moon and on the new moon. And in, remind themselves of their intention to practice. There, there's actually a code of behavior. Um, I'll tell you a little bit of it. Um, you would think about the period of time, which is basically about two weeks, and, and if there was any minor transgression, uh, say you had, in, in, a, in an angry state, you had maligned one of your fellow monks, you know. Well, you would tell one of your peers, oh, you know, I did this, and you know, I realize now this was not a very good thing to do. And then if you did something more serious, I don't know, maybe you stole something from someone else, you may go to a senior monk. And then if you did something quite serious, you would actually convene the sangha. Like, say, you rob the donation box or something. And you convene the sangha and you tell the sangha, you know, that last, guess where all that money went? <laughs> so, and then after you've done this, after everyone had done this, and um, you would all chant the rules of being uh, a monastic. So, of course, we're too uh, sophisticated and advanced in our practice to need something this rudimentary. Um, but I would suggest to you that um, to periodically remind yourself of, of what your intention is. You know? What is my intention around practice? Or a phrase I'd like to offer you which turns it, which puts the eye at the tail end instead of the beginning, is what does practice ask of me? To ask yourself that. You know? and, and to try to watch what kind of answer, you know, maybe be careful you don't just give some canned answer that you heard someone you read in a book or someone gave in a Dharma talk. And, I mean, can you give an answer that is an authentic expression of what's in your heart. And I would say, can you stay close to that? Can you keep that intention active in your being? I would even say, do it every day after you sit. And maybe that phrase doesn't work for you. Maybe when you use that phrase, your mind goes blank. Maybe there's some other phrase. But something that stimulates the reason you're here this evening, the reason you bother to get up in the morning or meditate in the evening or go on retreats or read books or whatever. What is the heart of that? What is the part of that that as your own good friend, 
you would like to tell yourself to not forget. What is that? What words? What breath? What state of mind express it? And what is it that return to it and be informed by it? This also has a place in our practice, this kind of intention or vow, if you want to call it that. So we end at nine. Okay. So um, I think I'll stop talking. It's almost completely different from what I thought I was going to say. (laughs) It's the freeway's fault. (laughs) Too interesting. So any questions about any of that or any comments? Please. great question. Um, I think it had a lot to do with noticing my physical surroundings and that helped me notice my mind the content of my mind and that the content of my mind was uh, a discrepancy between it and engaging in driving and being in that space on the freeway. So so I started with my physical surroundings and then it prompted me to look more at the content of my thoughts. Um, Regarding like the business world, I was intrigued with your 45-page statement because I certainly am kind of confronted with those things at work. So I'm wondering, um, what do you do about the things that don't sell? Budget does not balance, et cetera. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do you, what do you... Okay, you just came in two weeks ago. That's a pretty important thing because you're faced with this thing that's pretty serious. Yeah. Very significant deficit in the next yeah. financial year. Yep. So do you have any, you know, <laughs> any modes of attack for that or any modes of... Well, um... That are useful to think about? The, the way I think about it is yeah. to meet it concretely, directly, you know, like I called up the um, the treasurer and I said, could I have this following list, detailed list of financial information? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then have a series of meetings with him and the other people who run the center and say, okay, well, that we will need to have a strategy of, um, after we've done our analysis, have a strategy of where we can make cuts and, and 
have a process for thinking through the merits of different kinds of cuts. And then at the same time, to reflect on the practice of Mahakashipa, who lived under a tree and who ate mostly berries and, and fruits, and, and, uh, and, to, and to realize that um, basically, what, what do we need in our lives? I mean, it's great to have a warm place to sleep. It's great to have enough food. It's great to be able to stay warm during the day when, when it's cold and cool during the day when it's warm. And, and it's great to be in the company of good people who live a life of integrity and kindness. I mean... I mean, I think that's what we all really want, and we're doing all this to try to have that. Do you have that? Yeah. yeah. So, to, so to try to balance, to keep them both, you know, like meted heads on in a practical, detailed way, and, and not waffle about that, and then at the same time remember what's important in our lives. What's the mission here, too, of course? What's the mission of the center? The exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good. It's an affirmation of what I've been working on lately. It's very similar. Good. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Anything else you'd like to bring up or mention? Okay. Well, then, um, thank you very much.